Today in the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have part two of your week in IndyCar listener Q&A. Getting this started at 11.10 p.m. on a beautiful Friday. Sun, light clouds, looking out upon the peninsula here in the Bay Area. Looking out across from where we live in the East Bay, where I grew up on the West Bay. Funny, we don't call it that. You have the East Bay, the Oakland, the Berkeley, the San Jose-ish type area. Then you have the peninsula, the San Francisco, San Mateo, where I was born, Redwood City, Palo Alto, yada, yada, yada. Looking out, ah, brings a smile to my face. Got two sleeping and sunning themselves cats. One, Rocky, has just started a chirp. He wants to be fed. It's roughly lunchtime for he and his sister, Rosie. My wife, we are getting ready to go and uh, have an appointment here in just a little bit. So luckily got a little bit of time to knock out part two here. Thank you to so many of you for the really, really nice anniversary messages yesterday. Mrs. Pruitt and I met 18 years ago, married as of yesterday for 15 years, had just a truly awesome anniversary centered around ourselves and although there was one thing thrown in the middle and that was a physical therapy session for her three hours worth and she absolutely powered through it then uh, she found a new soul food place for us to try which we had for our dinner and we were massively disappointed so yeah uh, if you're in and around San Ramon California and you are craving soul food, drop me a note. I'll tell you where not to go. Uh, but anyways, look, this is not a real problem. It, uh, it is what it is, as Juan Montoya would say. All this stuff aside, uh, what else can I tell you? Been a slowish close to the week, thankfully. Couple little tiny kernels of things that interest me on the IndyCar side. More IMSA stuff that's flowing in that's interesting but I will have a couple of IndyCar things coming hopefully next week that might pique your interest as we head into good old American Thanksgiving holidays. Other than that, and the anticipated chirping from rock, meowing, wanting to be fed that I guarantee we're going to hear on the show today, why don't we get rolling? Uh, let's get going. Where do we start? Northern Penguin 01 says, hey, Marshall. A picture of Rick Ware Racing receiving a Delara IR18 in road course aero kit configuration was posted on this Reddit forum that he or she belongs to. Uh, what can you tell us about this? Is RWR trying to replace Team Go's role at Dale Coin Racing? Well... I thought we had, there was some smoke here, Northern Peng 101. Didn't know if it was a fire. Turns out it was just a little smoky. Uh, no fire at all. Reached out to a friend to ask for Rick Ware Racing's contact info and was told by that friend, oh, are you talking about the car we lent them? This being the Dale Coin Racing team. And yeah, turns out it's just a vehicular borrow. Goal by RWR, take the car, use the car for promotional purposes and hopefully raise funding to come back and do 
the Indy 500 again, maybe even more. So pretty straightforward and simple like that. Also realize I failed to mention for some of you who might have taken a look at the old Marshall Pruitt podcast Facebook page, the the book face page, um, we have a little guest coming on Monday by the name of James Johnson, also known as Jimmy Johnson. Uh, we're going to be doing this early Monday morning. We don't have a lot of time. I did mention on the podcast that, um, on the podcast, on the uh, good old Bookface page that if you got an excellent question, send it in. Uh, probably you're going to be able to use two, three, four, maybe. Uh, and I'm only extending this offer through the Facebook page because knowing that I can only use one or two or three, uh, there's no need for me to have our pal Tim Falkowitz go and uh, comb Twitter and Reddit and wherever else to try and gather all the questions it's going to be a short window, short opportunity. So if you'd like to submit a question for consideration with Jimmy, uh, the Marshall Pruitt podcast, Facebook page, and the thread calling for those is the only place you're going to be accepted. So just a little note there and a little uh, FYI. Uh, let's see. We're going to go to Jeremiah Morell. Never heard of you. Just kidding. You and your wife, Sarah. Awesome people. Thank you. Uh, Jeremiah says, how big of a deal is it? to an IndyCar driver to pick up the four-race IMSA endurance gig. Says four extra weekends of employment, but if we're going to assign financial importance, it's like adding another 10% uh, to their pay in their normal IndyCar world. What is it like? Is it a 25% uh, addition to their annual income, 40%? Or is it just the opportunity to run Sebring and Daytona for prestige that makes it worthwhile to them? Uh, goes on to say many moving pieces in the IMSA DPI category with Scott Dixon, Jimmy Johnson, Castro Neves, Bourdais, Rossi, and Ryan Hunter Ray in play. And are the drivers allowed to bring their functional LED panels back to the IndyCar? Now that is an awesome, awesome question, Jeremiah. And it reminds me that I have failed to share a photo uh, that pivots off of an item mentioned here that I got to do. So I'm going to do that here, uh, hopefully before uh, we hit out the door. So interesting how, yes, indeed, for those who do this, it is a big and important thing to them. The reasons, though, do vary, as you note. Uh, Simon Pagino is another one to throw in here, uh, and there are plenty of others in recent years that have been a part of things. Gabby Chavez, obviously no longer an IndyCar driver very recently, though, but he's the new IMSA Michelin Pilot Challenge uh tcr champion so yeah jack hawksworth is there aaron tealitz kyle kirkwood and so on and so on um if you are a full-time indycar driver and you are at the top of your game like a scott dixon uh and he has done sports cars for many years and we would assume he is probably the highest paid driver in indycar Although we don't know what that number is, we can safely assume it, it's good, it's healthy. Uh, something like this, going and doing the four Enduros with Wayne Taylor Racing as he's done, and winning, what, two of them? Uh, Petit Le Mans and the uh, Rolex 24 Daytona. And those are huge prestige items. And I know that there's money that comes with it. Uh, I'm not sure where to characterize this for Dixie. Um, we would assume, and I think rightfully assume he's been very smart with his money. 
right? Not a big flashy guy. You don't see him driving around 15 different Lamborghinis or whatever. So would this be a, hey, as long as people are asking, do it, even if it's only a whatever the number might be, you know, 10 to 20% bump in your annual income would be my guess. Um, Get it while you can, man, because at what, 40 years old, I think there's, there'd be a smart recognition that, hey, this is something where I only have a handful of years left to do the top level in the sport. So that might be one thing, but most of all, the guy just loves to race. He really does. And where there are no conflicts and there are demands on his time and skills, he'll absolutely be there. So that's just Dixon, and it has been for a long time. You mentioned Johnson. I think that's kind of a passion plus experience play in his part. Whatever he will be paid is going to be, you know, it'd be a rounding error based on his earnings over the past 20 years in NASCAR. For Elio, it had become his primary income. Um, so there's that for Sebastian uh, would say as well, this has been the lifeline for him this past season, employment-wise, although he ended up doing those couple of races to close the year for Foyt. Um, you know, what are you going to make full-time in IMSA compared to full-time in IndyCar? Of course, it varies based on the driver, talent, experience, and so on. Is it a one-third of what you would earn in IndyCar? Probably. Uh, I mean, there's although the budgets in DPI are remarkably close to an annual budget in IndyCar. Uh, the pay for the drivers, probably not as crazy, though. Um, you think of someone like a Rossi, a Ryan Hunter Ray, you know, these are guys who for sure are going to be earning well in IndyCar, probably not at the Dixon level. So could this be more in the 25 plus percent addition? It very well might be. And just to close on this, Jeremiah, the the need part is definitely the thing that I keep an eye on. So I'm not saying Alexander Rossi, Ryan Hunter Ray, whomever is broke, not at all. But this is something where as they see earning potential and value in the sport, this is something where a good four-race deal in IMSA And if that's something you can keep going for yourself for many years, this can be a valuable addition. And this is all speaking from IndyCar drivers don't get paid like they used to. Overstating the obvious that money is not what it used to be in the sport. We're not as flush as we used to be. So the, all the good guys uh, are making seven figures, you know, very decent seven figures. Uh, you might be surprised to learn how many are, are under the seven-figure range. So if you can throw in a four-race endurance deal, might only be four races out of the 10 or 11 uh, that IMSA holds, but keep in mind, these are the longest ones altogether. You know, if you do all four, it's what, 22, 28, uh, what, 52 hours or something like that of racing? Uh, granted they're not doing all, all those hours by themselves, but still it's a massive amount of racing. So you tend to get paid fairly well for that. Um, but again, at the same time, you know, there's some guys who might be getting paid 50 grand to do Daytona 
And uh, if they can get that, then that's pretty awesome. Uh, and there's probably the select few, these kind of IndyCar stars, who would step in and get paid a bit more because not only are they darn good, but if you are a more privateer you know, uh, customer team compared to a full, full factory, becomes a little bit easier to attract uh, other drivers, paying drivers, um, to come and spend money to be alongside you. So all kinds of stuff to take into account, my man. Uh, let's see. Uh, where are we going? J.J. Gertler. How you doing, J.J.? Says, with Jimmy Johnson's arrival at Ganassi, are Mike Hull and Michael Cannon learning to speak NASCAR? Do they have a little Berlitz book translating pushy to understeer or tours to tires? Um, what driver did you have the hardest time understanding technical communication from? Well, for, to your first question, uh, yeah, I think Jimmy's pretty savvy, right? Uh, if he had just been coming straight from 20 years of NASCAR and had not done road racing at all, sure. But he's also very smart and a very aware guy. And so this would be one of those things that he asks right away. All right, uh, let's go through lingo and, and dialect and get that part figured out. Um, technical communication from, uh, I might've mentioned this before on the show, uh, Bay area guy by the name of Mike Gouache, uh, who founded uh, molecule. Uh, some of you who race or maybe have just seen the ads for 15 plus years, that's the helmet and underwear and fire suit, uh, odor cleaning spray, uh, and products and whatnot. Uh, Mike founded a tile cleaning spurt, came up with a tile cleaning spray, uh, years before that, which was sold to, I forget DuPont or someone else for a zillion dollars. So, uh, Mike decided he wanted to go race pro Mazda, uh, bought two cars, big tractor trailer. Like f basically I'm going to do my best formula one impersonation with a pro Mazda team and, little bit of an older gentleman but man this guy was just a ball of fury he'd give you everything he had jj the thing he didn't have was the ability to describe what the car was doing so engineer was you know air quote managing and running the team was doing that kind of on the weekends and uh, in between as best i could um he didn't know what the car was doing he'd drive the living balls off of it jj but couldn't tell you what the front end was doing the back end the side end the bottom end top end any end um and so it ended up being something that i just had a lot of fun with because usually if you're working with someone who knows what they want can tell you maybe can at least tell you what's happening it gives you a good bar of reference to work from like okay here's kind of the the foundation and we'll make adjustments based on the foundation. Here, I just got to play. And so it was disconnecting things and connecting things and trying big, absolute, crazy changes to the car that I wouldn't do with anyone else because those subtleties are not things you could feel. So it would be giant spring rate changes, giant anti-roll bar changes, disconnecting the front anti-roll bar at 
Sears Point slash Sonoma Race, uh, Sears, yeah, Sonoma Raceway, for example, a place where you would never, ever, 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 ever do that. Uh, and yet I said, hey, I mean, let's just see uh, if he likes it or not. And so disconnected the front bar, then had to beef the heck out of the back of the car up to give effectively the front of the car some stability uh, on turn in and other things uh, by the rear of the car, kind of propping up the front of the car. And uh, he actually loved it and went faster. And I mean, I'm, I don't, I might've been laughing out loud and not at him, but just like, this is absurd, but Hey, I get to kind of sort of have fun doing this. And as we went through some of these giant changes that no race engineer would do, um, not because I'm cool, like they wouldn't do it. I mean, like everyone would be like, nah, dude, you're freaking insane. That's really stupid. I was like, hey, we need to go into stupid land. And hopefully these giant swings and handling performance will resonate. And then we can get a feel for what he likes, doesn't like, what he can handle, what he can't handle. And then kind of went back to a little bit more normal and was able to do things that were a little more granular in terms of changes instead of like, holy cow, uh, we've just made a 300-pound spring rate change at one end of the car. Just like, no, not not 50, not 100, like 300. Uh, and it was just having to do those things, trying to figure out uh, what he did or didn't like. And I think we got to a place, JJ, where there was a general idea or understanding, but one of those weird scenarios where I ended up engineering the car, meaning, yeah, I was there to engineer it, but it was kind of just me deciding what to do because the driver wasn't really able to play a part in that. And I don't know if how much it changed afterwards. Mike went on to become a champion in uh, the, was it ALMS or IMSA's, uh, LMPC category, the uh, spec prototype class. And uh, I don't know how much he improved in that area, but I'd like to think that our big crazy swings um, where I had to do absurd things maybe helped uh, lead him down that road a little bit. Uh, let's see, Eric Hermes. Hey, Eric. Marshall with both current Haas F1 drivers interested in coming stateside and open to ovals now as well. Who has room or would be willing to make room for these, quote, prodigious talents? Ah, I need to check in on both. So I'll apologize up front for not having up to the moment um, insights on this. I've might have mentioned before in the show that of the two, I have heard more reasonable possibilities for Romain Groschon to join IndyCar compared to Kevin Magnuson. And I don't believe it's because folks have less interest in Kevin. Uh, I just think that there have been a number of other potential things thrown Kevin's way that would likely have him staying in Europe that might have made whatever phone calls or inquiries rather short. So we'll see if anything gets confirmed there or not. Um, I mean, if I think on the what episode, the first episode this week, we ran through the available seats, uh, who is paying and what's open 
And so we're not going to do that now. We're not going to run back through everything. I'll just highlight the who has an availability and the possible slight interest in not necessarily paying for the guy because I don't know of any open seats where a paycheck comes with it, but at least work with Romain in this case. Uh, Foyt stands out, right? They have the number four Chevy. We also know that as they had this year in the number 14 car, that there were, what, three drivers that shared it? Well, there's going to be... That scenario could potentially uh, invert or flop or whatever the right expression is, where Sebastian's going to be in the 14 all year. Would that mean they might do a rideshare routine in the number four? Uh, And could a Romain be factored into that somehow? Possible. Um, I don't think there's anything there at Andretti Autosport. Um, Carlin's a question. I mean, I've reached out multiple times to try and get an update from them on basic things and have had zero responses and they're normally pretty good about that. So, uh, just speaking historically, when I've reached out to Carlin to ask questions that I think are pretty normal or average and get no response, it's usually because they're not in the mood for talking, not just, uh, being forgetful. So really I'd say Foyt Carlin, although I don't think Carlin works at all because they definitely aren't to my knowledge, really ready to be paying anybody uh, much of anything right now to drive for them. Uh, And so I'd say that probably leaves pretty much what we just discussed. Uh, Penske's not. Many others are not. Um, It might be more of a Foyt coin. You know, could coin have an interest? Possibly. Could Carpenter, if he goes into his own third entry just to do the ovals, could there be some interest there? Possibly. But I know that uh, the person that has been joining Ed uh, on the rideshare routine has not been getting paid, uh, meaning I'm sure they've been getting paid, I'm sure. But uh, they bring money to have the opportunity to then take a salary from that. So really, it's not many. Foyt, Coin, maybe Ed, if he does his third car and that driver can find some money and I don't know what the number would be, but it seems like that might be a bigger number than Romain could afford right now. Uh, let's see. Hire Lee. How you doing, Hire? Which team has got the biggest off-season hill to climb? Andretti catching up to other big teams on their damper development. Foyt keeping up that momentum from St. Pete. RLL trying to develop a stronger full-season program. Uh, I'd say none of the above there, Hire. I would say Andretti was certainly on the right path to close the year. And assuming they keep working in that direction, I think they're going to be just fine when we come back. Uh, the Foyt team, I mean, they already had a big hill to climb, so they they made some ground, but that hill remains. So I'd say there's no real change in terms of a, oh, and here's one that stands out as like, oh, that boy, they got some work to do that we aren't already expecting or familiar with. Um, Arlo, we touched on a little bit. I mean, they've been really good, uh, not really great other than the Indy 500. And so, you know, they've been top five material more often than not with Graham, if we're looking at the past season. But uh, I'd say the one that jumps out to me, if we're we're talking real like, hey, uh, you're going to have to get somewhere that is definitely more significant than where you have been, 
and there's reasonable expectations attached to it, right? Like Carlin, I'm not, there's nothing there, right? Still a small team, still underfunded. Uh, we only know of a, one part-time driver signed so far. They punched well above their weight this past season, but I'm not, you know, there are too many question marks here to really say, okay, they're, they're ready to go and they got a lot of work to do and they have the ability to do it. Um, they got a lot of things to solve that we assume I haven't heard about. Um, I don't know if I'd put coin in there. I thought they had a very good year. Um, obviously there was a lot of pit stop mistakes that, that really ruined many of their chances, but you know, were they ever in contention to win a race? No. Um, I don't know if they're going to be next year. We'll find out who the second driver first or second driver will be, but uh, I think they were executing at a high level in terms of what we would reasonably expect from them. Uh, the one that stands out most, and maybe to you as well and others, is Ed Carpenter Racing. You can say without a doubt, Ed had a miserable year in the ovals. We know that when Connor stepped out of his uh, road street course opportunity with Ed and climbed into Carlin's uh, 59 car on the ovals, he whooped up on his almost full-time team. So, boy, Ed Carpenter racing, being out to lunch on the ovals, it's just a bizarre concept, truly bizarre concept. Uh, I mean, Renus, we could say for sure, um, did well at Gateway, right? I mean, no question there. Um, Terms of being front-running, winning-ish, that didn't really land as we expected could also say that renus you know with that podium that poland podium ims road course showed a lot of promise uh, things didn't go super according to plan prior or after and connor in his uh, road and street course events with the team he had some highlights for sure but just way too many times of not really being a factor so we know he can drive we know Renus can drive. We know Ed can drive. And we know the team can engineer. So it's just might be a case of missing the uh, missing the plot a little bit this year. Uh, more than just road and street courses, but most ovals as well. So I'd put that uh, I'd put that ECR team as the one that if I'm looking for a rebound and some some cool reversals of fortune, uh, I'd probably put that on our pals at e to the cr uh joe Izzo, any news on a second carlin car are they still set up to run two cars if a deal can be put together to my knowledge they still have the correct amount of vehicles joe to do two cars um hoping as i mentioned to get an answer here jj gertler's back good lord a little uh little needy this week jj i tell you what uh, this is Marshall, a historical question, but one to which you were eyewitness. Uh, what was the relationship between the Hogan and the Penske teams? Did it work like the current technical agreements like Shank has? About this, probably not as much as I should. Yeah, the the post-Bobby Ray Hall, Ray Hall Hogan uh, championship winning uh, alliance, uh, once all that stuff kind of fell apart after a couple years, uh, we did have Carl Hogan um, uniting with Roger Penske doing that car for 
Emerson Fittipaldi. And then I think when Emma got hurt, what was it? Uh, Yen Magnuson. Um, it, it, I'd say to my knowledge, it worked well. There was definitely, uh, Penske Alliance. So I'd say probably darn near identical to the Andretti Autosport, Andretti Technologies, Meyershank racing relationship. Uh, where things started to get interesting for me is when Carl decided, all right, well, we're never going to win or do any better than the Penske guys if we're kind of their B team. And so it was switching and getting good old uh, a man with great initials just like you, Yirki Yorvaleto, J.J. Leto, uh, who went and then drove for Carl. And I, what is it? I think they bought a Renard for him. Um, and then, yeah, did a little bit of J.J., then switched to Lola and uh, with some guy named Heliarch Castro Nervous, uh, and then added another guy, Luis Garcia, who was terrible. Uh, but yeah, running the Penske chassis, kind of being the Penske affiliate team, running you know Penske's older lion that they had uh, kind of found a new home for in uh, Emerson. Yeah, uh, I'd say... It, it worked, kind of, sort of, but I think it also just showed Carl, who took great pride in being his own man, that partnering with, whether it was Bobby Rahal, partnering with Roger Penske, those things had merits, had values. One of them produced a championship, but yeah, he, he's very much his own man. And so going away from that relationship or those relationships, not totally a surprise uh okay just looking at how many questions we've got yeah we got a fair amount here so let's see how many more we can knock out in about an hour gonna try and be done in 90 minutes or so today why well we're leaving out the door here in 50 minutes so i might not actually get to do the full hour we'll find out uh let's see where are we going next i'm scrolling up Sorry. Uh, George O'Donnell. Hey, Marshall. Prayers for you and Chabrell. Says, here's my second question of 2020. Been waiting for the offseason to ask it. Wondering whether you would give an update on whether you've heard updates from some of the part-time drivers from the 2018 season who've disappeared without a trace, namely Zachary Clayman DeMello, also known as Zach Clamato, per our man Robin Miller. Uh, Rene Binder and Alfonso Chalice Jr. Uh, I'm sure they all hoped that a few races might lead to something in the future, but it clearly hasn't. Is it just down to a lack of funding? Uh, bonus, have you heard anything from Francesco Dracone? I uh, listened to the podcast was out, whilst out cycling during our latest lockdown here in the UK. Uh, sorry, George. We just, here in California tomorrow, starting tomorrow night, uh, we are going to have a month-long curfew starting for what 10 p.m each night till 5 a.m so uh we weren't going out but uh, i guess at least we know if we had a mind to we could not uh our man mr clamato he what tried indie lights in 2019 and that didn't go super well and so things kind of sort of sputtered out there um i know that there was family money involved for zach I would also say that while he showed some potential for sure, I would say jumping in at the Indy 500 and, you know, 
uh, I would say that just impressed the heck out of me. I don't know uh, if he did anything more impressive in IndyCar. Um, I think that might be a case of family and him coming to an understanding that, hey, we've put some good money behind this. He just he, he made his debut in, what, a third Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan entry, but then spent uh season-ish with uh, Dale Coyne Racing. If you're starting off with Dale uh, and you are hoping to do more and you're a person who's having to bring a budget, would say that things are only going to get far more expensive as you move up the ladder. I know that he had a sponsor that came along as well. Um, I forget there was some sort of family link to that sponsor too, but PaySafe, um, I th- they stepped back altogether from racing, and I think that might have also been a mechanism that caused uh, his fortunes to decline. So, yeah, uh, I think that just got to be way too expensive, and not speaking ill of, of Zach, but a championship wasn't in his future, not even close. So do you keep spending a lot of money to one day say that you finished eighth in the championship or seventh with, you know, one of the top two or three teams? Or do you say, eh, that was really cool. I can say I was an IndyCar driver. I qualified and competed in the Indy 500. Now I'm going to do some other things in life. Um, Renee Bender, uh, what I've heard about some GT ish, I think stuff in Europe. Um, both he and Alfonso, I know in speaking with Ricardo Junkos and Ricardo's as direct and honest and blunt as you can be. He said straight up, the reason that they drove in IndyCar races for me is because they had money, which made me able to put the car on track and have it in the race. Nothing more than that. And also said, in hindsight, I almost wish those deals hadn't been done. Because, again, despite all the platitudes, they're nice guys and they're this and they're that, they did not belong uh, in IndyCar from a competitive standpoint. They could make up the numbers and not get in people's way too much, but that's not necessarily the, the dream that most people hold of one day becoming an IndyCar entrant to just scrape onto the back of the grid and try not to get hit or run into others or be a nuisance. So yeah, uh, that's pretty much what I know. Francesco. I don't know. Almost feels like we need to do a podcast. Francesco. It's almost like you were never here in IndyCar, but tell us where you've been since, because, uh, I guess, I guess I haven't given a fart. Uh, hey, let's go to our pal Michael Steenblick says, MP, hope all is well on the home front and tell Chabrell to keep kicking cancer's ass. Indeed, I will, Michael. What would be your over-under on Elio getting a win with Meyer Shank Racing in those six races next year? It says, by the way, in my mind, uh, you have successfully achieved a polished turd of a podcast. Keep up the great work. Ah, Dang it. I was trying to keep it unpolished, but if you're telling me it's polished now, well, I got to come up with a, another description. Uh, could I? Yes, I could. He didn't have a great opening weekend with Aaron McLaren SP. I know that that cast a doubt as to whether he still had it. He still does. Uh, I know we're, 
talking primarily a what road and street course plan for him but with the right engineer in place and i don't know who that will be but with the right person making the cargo quickly at indianapolis never ever ever will i count him out uh honda we if they're anything like they were in 2020 they're going to be pretty darn tough to handle um yeah i i certainly would and you know am i expecting him to race down a dixon uh rossi new garden so-and-so at the other rounds eh, probably not uh but if the car is solid a bunch of top tens for elio top seven top eight should absolutely be on the cards and could i see him at or near a podium uh, on one of those non indy 500 events i could i could i mean that's the thing a lot of folks have a, a at least a really good day in the sun uh, during the season so i could certainly see that happening for ellie with all of his experience um that's going to be that's going to be a fascinating thing to watch the other thing michael which probably going to be the most interesting at Penske, even though he moved over to sports cars for the last three seasons, it was with people that he knew, had worked with or worked around uh, in terms of race engineers, managers, strategists, all folks that were, despite prototypes versus open-wheel uh, vehicles, I mean, this is him just moving to a new home with the same family, comfort-level working style processes all things that he do understands and knows eyes closed the whole time here this is the thing that i'm going to find interesting and i'm hoping i'll remember to do a story about this uh, after he gets a couple of tests in the books what's it like knowing you know like i said eyes closed you know are so familiar with things over the last 20 years with penske tell me about this process of like no uh, we don't have someone who carries your helmet and brings it to pit lane for you or from pit lane back to the transporter. Uh, <laughs> if you want your helmet, then you should go get it. Like, I'm not saying that's what the Meyershank racing team does or will do, but, um, it's one of those things where you go, I mean, Jimmy Johnson mentioned that same exact thing of like, Oh, uh, Okay. Let me go run back and get it. Uh, just was unaware that that was not a, a regular service provided by the team. One that he'd become accustomed to in cup forever. So just silly little things like this uh, with Roger. What's, you know, the thing about it, if you're five minutes early to a meeting, you're late kind of routine. Uh, I don't know what the culture is like at Shank. I know that it's easy to just, continue doing things in that Penske way, which will serve you well, but culturally does that fit, right? It's never bad to be early for a meeting unless the team you're working with is like, no, no, that's not pressure that we feel is, is healthy to put on oneself. We're all here all on time, starting on time, but we don't need people worrying and constantly checking their watch to make sure that they're minimum five minutes early, if not 10. Well, in theory, that's five or 10 minutes sitting idle. Uh, is there something you could be doing that would help us 
whether it's completing a task, doing something extra, whatever on the car, who, whatever it might be. Uh, that's how we prefer to do things. So no, don't show up early, be on time, be ready to go on the hour, but no, uh, that doesn't fit. Like, so again, it's just these little things, Michael, I'd be really fascinated to learn about. Uh, then also obviously what we assume to be learning to work with a brand new race engineer who may or may not know or have ever spent a moment over the radio with Elio or debriefing with Elio. And, you know, this is an interesting move and it has a lot of questions attached to it. Ones that for a younger driver, a Pato award going from, uh, one team to the next, a Colton Herta going from one team to the next, uh, we might not have the same questions because they don't have so many years of ingrained everything uh, to compare and contrast and adjust to. Uh, let's go to Mark Hamilton. Let's see, is it really true that, quote, nothing can be done about the tire marbles? So as I would guess, uh, much harder tire compounds would help with the problem. Uh, what is the downside? Slower lap times? Well, it'd be the same for everyone, so I'm not sure that it would be a big deal if you went to harder tires. Upside is better racing for the whole race, longer stopping distances, more sliding through the corners, maybe more technique from the drivers. What am I missing? Well, did you happen to watch the Formula One race, the last Formula One race in Turkey? Uh, if you did, you might have noticed that the track surface is one where it was not conducive to generating grip. Uh, the surface itself, despite being brand new, was not laid in such a way with materials, I should say, that had the little rough bits, the jagged bits, not cutting the tire jagged, but just the, the I guess, well, we've got cats here, uh, like a cat's tongue, something that has a bit of, of friction waiting for you. So that when those tires, whether they are soft or hard or otherwise, have something to really dig into and create that grip. Well, the inverse, the, or not the inverse, but the, uh, the other scenario is, well, what if the tires are so hard that they don't really dig into the track surface? It's kind of the again, same thing um, in terms of a problem. So... Slower lap time, sure. Uh, in theory, if the tires are so hard that uh, the little bits of rubber would not be ground away and, and come off uh, through hard cornering, braking, etc. Uh, but then you would have cars that would be kind of sort of undrivable and not, I would anticipate, a whole lot of fun because it's one thing to have enough grip to where you can have a bit of sliding that you can control. Uh, the scenario you're painting here, Mark, is one where that's not really a possibility, where you have tires that are so hard that you can't really work them. And that then makes it hard to generate temperature. And, 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 and. So what I would say you're creating here is tiptoeing and being super cautious and super safe. And since the cars do not have traction control, um, yeah, it wouldn't just be, Hey, we've gotten rid of 
significant amounts of marbles, um, but we've made the racing more fun, it would be, yeah, there might not be a lot of marbles, but people can't really push their cars without them spinning uh, or understeering off the track or whatever it might be. So, uh, yeah, the downside is really crappy racing. Uh, so that's the reason why you don't see them. Uh, Firestone has the ability to make in rock hard tires if they want, and they don't. And so we now know the reason why. Kevin Pinkston, congratulations on another record record setting year. Thanks, man. Uh, you field a question or two about teams testing in the last podcast. And given the fact that we've all heard about the sophisticated sim programs of Honda and Chevy, I was curious to know um, if any of the more established teams have shaker rigs of their own to utilize during those months that they can't actually be on track. Uh, I don't recall them being spoken about too much on your quote, unpolished, on your polished turd. I guess, all right, it's officially a polished turd now. Uh, two people have said it, so that makes it official. Uh, Kev kindly says, thank you for all your hard work. Uh, my best to you and your bride. I only know of two IndyCar teams that have their own seven post shaker rigs in-house, that being Chip Ganassi Racing and Team Penske. If Andretti has one, my brain has forgotten it. Uh, so, yeah. And to my knowledge, just about everybody goes to, I think, there, you know, there aren't lots of options here. Like, there aren't, there, you're not going to find one in every state. So, um, otherwise, yeah, uh, most teams go and rent, and it's not cheap at all, uh, but go external for such things. Uh, Nathan Cook, MP, I hope you and your wife are continuing to get better. We are. I know a couple of years ago I saw something about Penske Shocks working on a locking steering wheel damper that would effectively lock the steering wheel during a front impact. Did anything ever come of this? I don't remember seeing that, Nathan. So uh, you, if you recall seeing a link for it, don't be afraid to send it my way, my man. I uh, don't remember that at all. I do remember a steering damper. Uh, that uh, our man Derek Walker wanted to devise to minimize uh, kickback and wrist and hand injuries in the event of a crash, but I don't recall the one you are mentioning. Um, And I'm not sure why you would want to lock the steering wheel during a frontal impact because uh, there could be things that you want to do with the car, trying to spin it, going backwards, for example, going sideways again who knows what you're going into whether it's uh a cement wall a safer barrier tires another car who knows so uh don't recall it but also i'm struggling to think of a reason why you would want a device that took away your ability to control the car up until the last second you made that impact next question is from our pal zach eckler mp do you have any idea when you can return to the racetrack's in 2021 and if you'll be there for the indy 500 would love to see a live show and closes by saying praying for you and your wife thank you zach that that is genuinely amazing i don't uh so give you the the quick rundown here for more than a year now i've almost forgotten the duration Uh, my wife has been immunocompromised for those who don't don't know what that means it means she does not have a functioning immune system that's because uh, she has been receiving and continues to 
and will continue receiving chemotherapy for a good long while. That chemotherapy wipes out her immune system, therefore means COVID's the big scary monster to avoid, but that's actually just one of like three grades of things that I am actively having to avoid, and that is the common cold. Uh, That is whatever seasonal flu, and then COVID. So potentially just a basic cold, if not a flu, could have fatal implications for my wife and anybody who is undergoing chemo and or for whatever reason does not have a uh, functioning immune system. So that's the reason why I haven't been to any mass gatherings at a racetrack. Um, Even if it's a track where no fans have been allowed, Zach, like being on pit lane with hundreds of people or wherever else, like getting on an airplane with a bunch of people uh, who I don't know if they've been tested or not, airports, uh, so on and so forth, like just being exposed to folks who could be sick that could get me sick, which could make me get my wife sick. Like it's just a knock-on effect. It's the domino thing that while I can't guarantee and we can't guarantee that none of these things will happen, we're just having to be very smart about reducing the potential of exposure. That is uh, the reason why I can't tell you when I can say I am not going to have to fear losing (laughs) my wife uh, because of me going to a racetrack and it might not have anything to do at the track. It could be the part of traveling to or coming home from. Once we know that that is not a giant risk, you are absolutely going to be partaking in a live podcast. So my hope, hope, hope is I'll get to go to St. Pete next year and preseason testing and Long Beach and the Indy 500 and all kinds of other great stuff. Just got to get to a place, brother, where, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Jordan Darwin, MP, no question. Just all the best to you and your wife's health. Thank you. Got a running theme of y'all being just the sweetest people. Uh, He says, we will keep praying for you too. Keep up the great content. Congrats on the download record in 2020. I don't think I mentioned that. Maybe I did on, I don't know. I I genuinely don't remember if I mentioned this in part one. But yeah, 2 million downloads for the year. Uh, Boy, nuts. Uh, Somehow I think we're not going to do that next year. So it might be a one-time thing. But nonetheless, uh, Jordan says, you've been a great part in keeping our years somewhat normal each week. Thanks for all you do. Not sure if you will take next week off. So happy Thanksgiving to you and my fellow listeners. Thank you, Jordan. Seriously, thank you. Uh, not going to be able to take next week off, off, but I am going to do my best uh, to put together a bunch of content maybe over the weekend and through Monday and Tuesday-ish and file that and hope that that stands so I can take some days off. Uh, we got a busy-ish early week next week with uh, physical therapy on Monday, then a hospital visit, and then Tuesday we've got chemo, and then Wednesday we've got physical therapy again so that we can be free for uh, good old Thursday and Thanksgiving. Um, and, but anyways, to your point, thank you. Uh, I'm going to do my best. Uh, Casey Coolidge says, Marshall, the 2021 chassis is delayed in the IndyCar field and IndyCar fields. The willpower carding WP 12 for the 2021 season is stopgap. Who ends up where in the championship? Uh, does ask you win? Does Ferrucci also, and uh, the post COVID chaos, a rift forms where the IndyCar teams 
choose to host their own race in Michigan on Memorial Day. And Roger Penske has to host an 8500 composed entirely of rookies. What notable names make the cut of 33? Uh, to the first one, yeah, I think, you know, Askew is the go-to, right? Uh, he just won again, um, what, at the Super Nats, I believe, if I'm using the correct term. So, yeah, that's Askew for sure. I don't know about Ferrucci and Karts. Uh, that's just my own ignorance. But, um, I mean, I, the first time I ever saw him, it was doing some karting. But I don't know where he ranks in terms of having been, like, a all-time badass, global badass, whatever. So, that's my own stupidity. Uh, boy, um, are we wanting to host kind of a, a rebel race in Michigan uh, again? Uh, yeah, uh, the last one didn't go off. The last ones didn't go off the way we hoped. And uh, I don't live in Michigan, but man, it sure looks like things are a little crazy there right now. Uh, let's see. Entirely of rookies. Well, uh, I mean, rookies from where? Uh, why don't we pick three and I mean, Jimmy Johnson's kind of the obvious, right? He is a total rookie. So let's go with Jimmy Johnson as the first, um, where else do we go here for our rookies? I really want to see Nick DeVries. What was he? 20, was it 19 formula two champ? Um, who's having to fart around in sports cars right now because nothing's opened up in uh, F1 for him. I want to see Nick DeVries. Uh, I, I think that kid, uh, I think that kid could be really special. And so what? We've gotten a NASCAR driver coming IndyCar as a rookie. We've got a Formula 2 driver coming to IndyCar as a rookie. We need to pick a sports car rookie. Uh, or a rookie from sports car, someone who's never done IndyCar. Um, who do we go with here that is uh, young and impressive? And I say young because, I don't know, I just did. There's no real reasoning behind it. Um, last show or two, we discussed Colin Brown, so we've already been there. Uh, yeah, I might want to pick him, but I don't know. Uh, who do we go with? And they maybe don't have to be young because, yeah, there's more older than younger. Uh, all right, I'm going to give myself five seconds to come up with the answer here. I was going to say Mike Conway. But that's funny. Not funny because it's really funny because it's dumb. All right, Ricky Taylor, that's it. He's not necessarily young, but, hey, that's it. Those are the three. That's your front row. Uh, sorry, I don't have another uh I don't quite remember uh, the rest that you uh, threw in here. Boy, my brain is telling me to turn it off right now. Um, all right, where are we going here? Uh, <laughs> David Goodhue says, So, Formula One has their new precious metal, Turn One, Overtake 320, Neom White, and Carbon Rain fragrances. What would be your IndyCar fragrances? Hashtag me personally, Center of Pressure. Milk in May and push to pass would be fun. Best to you and your wife. Uh, what would we... Uh, broken LED. No, blinky. Blinky LED would be one. Um, hole in the floor would be another one. Emergency flap. That would be another. Um, arrow spray would be another. 
Uh, what else might we have that could be, uh, I mean, in honor of our good show friend and race engineer Supreme, Chris Simmons, he might trademark it. He might make money off of it. Pushy loose, for sure, would have to be one. Um, Heliarch, that would be uh, for Elio, for sure. Uh, Heliarch would be one. Uh, Captain America, right? Uh, that'd be a Hunter Ray one. Crazy Eyes, that would be the Will Power perfume. Uh, hint of taco that would be colton herta's uh what else silent rage by alexander rossi um beer maple that would be uh our james hinchcliffe perfume uh, what else is coming to mind here? Uh, a lot of bad ones. Hey, Rock, you got an idea? What do you want? My wife's nickname for Rocky is the uh, Pink Nose Bandit because this guy loves getting his face into any little piece of food. Like, if we're on the couch and we've had a snack or whatever, and if we fall asleep, like, we know what's going on because we'll hear the little crunch of something and... Cats don't fully understand that sound travels. Um, so Pink Nose Bandit, that would be the official Pruitt family one, uh, named after our cat Rocky, who's always finding a way to get into the show, huh, buddy? Um, what else? It is what it is, the official perfume of Juan Montoya. Uh, what else? Steak, that would be uh, the Foyt families. Uh, God, uh, if I had Robin Miller on here, We'd come up with even more. Um, the tripod, that'd be a, a retro one as well for uh, Gordon Johncock, one of the more aptly named uh, drivers in the world. Um, we're going to stop there because I have a feeling it's just going, going to a really bad place. Uh, those, by the way, those are all the questions above Tim Falkowitz's merciless cut line. What does this mean? What is Tim saying? The rest of you aren't worthy of being on the show. I disagree. I mean, the guy is just, he is so cruel. But, you know, we, uh, we meaning me, we're going to try to do uh, do something nice here and keep going just a little bit. Uh, let's see. Where are we going to move into overtime? As we say, thank you as always to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com and Bell Racing Helmets USA. Uh, Chris McIntosh, you're going to open overtime here. Hey, MP, let's see. Make a little marker on the show here so I can tell you when overtime starts. It's a new thing I'm going to try and remember to do. Uh, let me preface my question with a more of a casual IndyCar fan. That being said, I'm a complete road to Indy novice other than what I've learned from the show. Ah, well, I probably have done a bad job then. Um, over the last several weeks, you've talked a lot about the road to Indy. I've been thinking about how to grow the different series. Why couldn't something be done much like NASCAR did with the Bush and truck series in the 90s and early 2000s, where cup drivers would come down and race, have a a few IndyCar drivers um, race on the companion events. That could bring a larger field and sponsors. It might be easier to get a sponsor if they get a race or two with a Dixon or New Garden driving. Uh, Also, maybe some drivers at the end of the year uh, of their IndyCar careers like a Montoya or Canon, could run. Um, you mentioned it would be a good experience with young drivers to run with veterans, etc. 
Uh, thank you, Chris. Well, a couple things why that probably wouldn't be so feasible, Chris. If we think about how the average cup weekend where you have, say, Xfinity and Cup running together. Similar cars, not identical, but similar. Uh, very similar. Use same tire company. There's things that can be learned. As I recall, the original premise for drivers, cup drivers saying, hey, we are uh, want to do some stuff this weekend in one of the lower categories, whether it's, quote, Xfinity or, uh, or trucks, uh, the original premise, maybe even putting their own cars together to do that, was going to learn more, uh, going to be able to have more information and knowledge coming into the primary cup race. Obviously, that developed a bit. Hey, new sponsors, money to be made, and all kinds of stuff. But if we're just looking at the roots of it, it was more track time, more knowledge, and that's going to carry over and help me in the big race have a bit of an issue here where an Indy lights car and an Indy car are nothing alike in terms of speed and more than anything tire, two different companies. One of them, Cooper tires, our longest running show sponsor looks after all the categories on the road to Indy Indy car. We know long-term partner with Firestone. These deliver very different handling characteristics and that's not a, comment of quality or any it's just very different handling characteristics so being out in a indy lights car i would say would offer zero value to indy car drivers unless there was some sort of drastic reason why indy car teams would not have information or any just solid preconceived notion of grip availability on the track track surface quality and so on and there was some reason to try and get out to just get a feel even though maybe the tires from cooper weren't something that the indycar drivers knew and so on if there was some drastic reason to want to get out and do a session to at least say okay i kind of know and i can feed this back to my team and this will help us in some way i could see that but for the most part there's no need for that so here, um, I'd just say, Chris, I can't think of a reason why any IndyCar team or driver would do this by having an IndyCar driver participate in any of the classes on the road to Indy because it's not going to help them. Cars are too dissimilar, and the tire portion is really what invalidates the value in this. Um as for some older drivers coming and doing it, I mean, you also have to keep in mind that you know, there, there's pride and prestige involved, right? Um, on rare occasions, do we see an established pro willfully go down? Uh, it's usually same level uh, or similar level, but not backwards. Think about if you follow Major League Baseball at all. There are players who get injured and have a significant uh, amount of time out of the game so much so that to get them work back into shape and routine they'll be sent down 
to one of the, you know, triple A ball farm teams and such do that for a week or two month, who knows. And it's all just under the guise of getting you back in gear without having to start off um, in the major leagues, going straight back, being cold for so long. While most of those players understand and accept that decision, like it's never received well that an established pro has to go play amateur ball for any period of time. Uh, it's another thing, too, where as a boxing and MMA fan, you have a fighter who comes back from a long layoff or injury or whatever. Uh, it happens from time to time where it's a champion and they come back and agree to do a fight right away for the belt. Sometimes they win, sometimes they don't. What you normally see, though, is, all right, I'm going to get tuned up a bit and I don't necessarily want to have to fight some people that I wouldn't necessarily consider to be championship caliber but I'll do it because I know it serves the greater good here. That's not the case here with what we're talking about with a Montoya or Kanan. Um, they're champs. They're proven to be among the best of their generations and so on. Just stepping down to go back to where they came from. Montoya never did lights, by the way. Um, but just stepping back to race among amateurs and kids just for the sake of racing I don't think you're going to hear any of them saying, oh, yeah, send me down, or, or that's the door that I want to open. It's, I'd rather go do sports cars or NASCAR or sprint cars or something, but I've already been here, uh, in Kanan's case, a champion in lights. So I think, I think, am I wrong? I could be. Um, just really not a thing, Chris. So love the questions. Uh, please keep them coming. This one, These ones just don't necessarily fit. Uh, Dan Rice says, thanks for answering my question about the possibility of a NASCAR style charter system on last week's episode. You mentioned that something similar was tried in the cart days. that sounded like it didn't end well as a newer fan of IndyCar who knows little of the cart days. Could you discuss what happened back then with their system? <sighs> I'll go into this super briefly and maybe it's something we'll pick up uh, when I a, have a little bit more time, Dan. Um, and B, who knows? Um, so let's come up with a structure where all the participants in the cart IndyCar series are franchise owners and have an equal say and vote on basically everything, uh, or the majority of things there's, there were CEOs throughout the years who made a lot of uh, decisions as well, but what you often had, as I am told, I wasn't there, just having to remember what I read, but also what I've been told in the years since, um, you have team owner versus team owner and a lot of competing uh, ideologies. Uh, there's also competing benefits, right? Hey, uh, if I could get so-and-so to change this, uh, or if I get them to change this technical thing, well, that's going to suit me with the engine that I have. Either I'm going to get an advantage or I've been at a disadvantage and maybe I could get them to change this rule uh, that would actually tip things in my favor. Um, there are a lot of agendas. That's what I recall hearing the most about. 
And coming back to our friend Dale Coyne, one of the other great things that I just remember hearing about constantly was whatever the question was, Dale Coyne was going to be your hard, unflinching no. Hey, do you guys want sandwiches uh, for today's meeting or do you? No. Uh, Well, I didn't finish asking the question. No. Like, as it's been retold to me, which means it could be wrong or exaggerated, Dale was the constant thorn in everyone's side. And he was absolutely uh, the person who wanted to make sure that he was the... uh, the, the check and balance on everything. He was representing the, uh, the small team owner and seemingly everything he had to ask was going to ask, you name it was all centered around trying to protect, uh, the smaller team owners of which he was probably the smallest. So this comes back to the protecting one's interests. It's a lot different when everyone in the paddock who is the show, they decided to put on their own show broke away from USAC, said, hey, we're going to do our own thing. We're going to sanction ourselves. We're going to be us, uh, not someone else's thing. We're it. Um, that's a great thing. I love that idea of independence. The only downside is is when the people who put on the show and have the ability to throw pretty serious weight and leverage around can say, nope, not doing this, even though it makes total sense and everyone's in agreement uh, I do not because for whatever reason, it maybe doesn't benefit me. And so instead of coming back to the greater good, uh, I'm going to hold a hard line and no, I'm going to veto this. So we're not going to have uh, total buy-in. So it's more that than anything. It was, I've never heard much about it being a dollar and cents thing. Like that was the issue, uh, how much it cost, how much the valuation of teams would have been, etc. cetera. Um, yeah, it was just more the getting hardcore competitors into a room who all have a vote. And when it has to be unanimous, boy, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, not really working. Uh, all right. Last couple of questions here. Uh, Randy Holbrook, hi Marshall among the current car drivers who wins a foot race in the hundred yard dash, who wins a five K and also who finishes last in each. Uh, Boy, who's going to be fastest? You know, uh, these things I should know, right? And we know that we know that some are runners, but I'm just trying to think of like who's the the most pure athlete. Um, I don't know why, but I'm gravitating towards Joseph Newgarden. If we're talking the uh, the hundred yard dash, I could be totally wrong. I don't know. Uh, Rossi maybe jumps out too. Um, who else? Yeah, I think I need to learn more about this for sure. Uh, who wins the 5K? I have no idea. I mean, they all have really good endurance, so uh, that I don't know. Who finishes last? Well, I'm not a driver, but, you know, if we're talking about from the IndyCar community, it'd be me, right? I mean, my fat ass running is maybe not my forte. Uh, but who would finish last among the established drivers? I mean, is it Takuma Sato? Just because even running at top speed, you know, uh, the distance that he's covering with each stride is maybe less than everyone else's. So I don't know if that holds any merit or not, but I'll just say it. 
Um, Ron Thompson, what leaves a driver first? Is oval or road racing skills? Well, I would say his or her oval or road racing skills do not leave. Uh, would say that the thing that leaves a driver first is the willpower slash passion slash fire to push to their maximum on every single lap and every single corner. Um, that's the thing that wanes. I mean, there does come a point in time with age where speed and dexterity, hand skills, foot skills, your, you know, your body is not moving at the same lightning speed as you wanted. It's not like your hands and feet become drastically slow. Just, uh, look, it's part of aging. (laughs) Um, so there's a little bit of that reaction times and such, but really what leaves a driver first, the thing that makes a driver no longer uh, a lethal weapon skill wise is that constant flat out mental attack. There just comes a point and every driver will tell you, uh, for those who choose to retire compared to those who are retired for whatever reason, maybe injury or loss of opportunity. But for those who say, Hey, next year is going to be my final year or this year, or this next race is it. There's been some sort of reckoning where whether it is the mental effort and exertion in the car, whether it is years and decades of travel and hassle and all these things that just feel like a weight that keep you from being at your peak, that that keep you from having the breaking through and having that total mental clarity so you can attack be as crisp and sharp and proactive, reactive, all the things you need, it's, you start to see little tiny reductions there first. And that's what makes a driver who, when you remember them being on pole and winning all the time, and they get a little bit older, whatever that age might be, and all of a sudden those wins and podiums are either infrequent or gone, uh, and are maybe th- fourths and fifths, sevenths, eighths, those things, they haven't forgotten how to drive. It's just that thing in their chest is not it, there. It's not going a thousand miles an hour, um, pumping blood at a million miles an hour because that thing inside them needs to beat the world. That's usually the thing. Uh, let's see. Greg Sakor. Hey, Greg, been a little while. Hey, MP on a recent off track episode, that being James Hinchtown Cliff and Alejandro Rossi. Uh, Hinch suggested that double points for the, for the Indy 500 be split into points for qualifying position, that'd be the entire field, and race position. This seems like a good idea given the amount of effort and expertise and performance uh, by driver and team uh, represented for each achievement. It's a bummer if a driver qualifies very well but has, for example, a mechanical issue in the race. What are your thoughts or perspectives? Uh... Yeah, I think the qualifying points are just stupid. They always have, well, I shouldn't say always. Haven't been doing them for that long, but yeah, I think that's just really dumb. Uh, The, hey, folks try really hard to do this thing, therefore they should get points for it. I mean, cool. So every session, every session should have points. Um, I can think of many areas, Greg, to apply points, right? Hey, Uh, All the cars go through technical inspection. Some, all, if, many, something uh, might have a little thing 
um, that need tending to fixing and so on. Um, but Hey, if teams roll through tech and the team that rolls through with zero issues or those who do that come through with zero issues each time they go through tech, both mandatory and voluntary, they get points. Uh, and for those that have issues, get one thing flagged, two, three, there's a subsequent reduction in points. Um, I mean, we can probably find all kinds of ways to assign points. I know we're talking 8,500. It's the biggest race of our year. It's the biggest everything of our year. I get double points. I'm not saying I agree with double points, but I get double points because it's so grandiose, so therefore there's a desire to attach something bigger to it than you would get at wherever else. But I just qualifying just seems silly to me, right? The one point for pole, okay. You know, there, there is an effort and an achievement of trying to start first and go the fastest. It's been established for a while. I get the single point because it's only a single point. I guess it's never stood out to me as seriously problematic, but some sort of weighted points system um, in qualifying and the top this, get that, and the bottom this, don't, whatever. I just don't see it. Uh, I think it's just, I think it's participation trophies. So, um, yeah, uh, I'm with you. I know about it. I know about things being a bummer, uh, have qualified second with a team in 98 and we led and then the car broke and yeah, we didn't, uh, have a good finish at all. It was brutal. Um, we took home some good money for qualifying second, uh, and you know, that, that was an incentive, but like, Hey, here's a heaping of points. Meh. No, not really. Also qualified on the last row and was first out in 99 with good old, uh, greasy old salad bar. And that was brutal as well. Um, I would say there was never a thought in my mind that for doing as well as we did in 98, we should get something extra in terms of the championship. And then the following year where we were the trashiest of trash, uh, we should or shouldn't like, <laughs> you know, I, I'm kind of a, a balance guy. So if someone's going to get a significant amount of points or whatever meaningful amount of points for qualifying or a group of drivers, you know, a weighted system, then there doesn't just need to be zero. Like let's start doing negative, you know, Hey, if you want to opt in for, if we're going to do this if, with the pleasure, got to, got to be some pain hey you're on pole you get 15 points whatever pick the number hey you qualified last double down negative <laughs> 30 oh and by the way it's not just driver's points it's also leader circle like i'm just saying if we're gonna if we're gonna go this route like make it crazy make people so afraid of qualifying last, even though there's going always going to be someone who qualifies last that, you know, we just cause heart attacks and spend, I don't know, the GDP of the state of Indiana, uh, over two weeks for people trying to not be last. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, eh, points for qualifying. I get the one point Meh, doesn't do much for me. It's so small that again, it 
probably not going to tip the championship. Uh, but yeah, beyond that, uh, the qualifying points at Indy, I think is whack. Uh, Brett Ross MP, I recently bought a book on Roger Ward. Got me thinking which current IndyCar driver would be competitive. Um, being in the front engine roadster era, hashtag me personally, I think Colton Herta would be, uh, should I mention that I spoke with a certain Dutch, uh, Indy 500 winner yesterday who mentioned that a book is in the works about him. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be only in Dutch or if it will be in Anglaise, but, uh, yeah, pretty cool to hear about that. Uh, roadster era, current IndyCar driver who would be excellent. Uh, Scott Dixon, right? Uh, fastest hands. Uh, yeah, this is the guy who can drive the loosest car faster than anybody. Knowing that Roadster era was pivoting off of a high-profile right rear tire, kind of a spring-loaded thing, and drifting became a thing, uh, I would say that would be Scott Dixon, just probably by a pretty wide margin. Uh, where else might we go though? Uh, I think it's just Scott Dixon period. Yeah. Um, and hopefully that'd be a really cool thing to see happen. Tell me about when you got the old time machine back up and running my friend. Uh, boy. All right. Kevin Frederico. Uh, I'm, let me do the word count on your question here. 246 words, my friend. Nearly one-tenth of everything sent in uh, comprised in one question. Uh, Just a gentle suggestion here. If you were to make 250-ish words, more like 50, a little easier to digest, brother. Uh, Your overall point or or thing raised, I mentioned uh, based on a listener question, I think last week about marketing online presence being underwhelming, that uh, listener observed compared to NASCAR and F1. I mentioned that IndyCar financially much smaller entity, despite Roger Penske's personal wealth. Um, They don't have a dedicated department that I know of for this. And your suggestion was to outsource. Uh, You mentioned Jacob Agajanian, part of the famous uh, Agajanian racing promotion and team ownership family. They have a, a media service, out of Los Angeles that might be able to assist them. Um, I would hope that they would consider such things. I do know that Roger's general approach is not big on contractors and external stuff. It's more internal. So, um, yeah, let's see. Where else am I going to go? I think i got time for maybe one more, two more. Um, Tony Chef 20 got a question here about uh, last of the IndyCar dirt races, uh, send that one back in maybe, uh, and I'll probably try and brush up on it again because I don't feel like I can give your question a proper answer. Right now, uh, we're going to close here for the day, for the episode, for the week, for the whatever. Uh, Two questions. Uh, Hunterwood86 from Reddit. I don't know if I recall reading one from you, Hunterwood86, so uh, if not, thank you for sending this in. He or she says, I heard your question last time about having a version of Drive to Survive for IndyCar. Was wondering what your take on it being unique um, and what sort of spin would you see working for it? So it's a big part of 
what makes it engaging, this being obviously the F1 version or the F1's drive to survive, is the high stakes for everyone set among the glitz and glamour of the F1 paddock uh, and their parents' summer homes. (laughs) Yeah, so... IndyCar obviously does not have the traveling circus going to the whole globe and going to some very uh, well-known racing circuits to all racing fans. Also doesn't have the big kind of cachet of all the auto manufacturers that are involved. Some of the drivers, of course, who are some of the world's most famous athletes. We don't have those things. Um, What I think could be of the interesting angles to pursue Hunter Wood 86 is the quality of competition. That's the thing. The way if we look at how Drive to Survive is presented, it's a bit reality show, right? There there are angles that are chosen to present in order to make good TV, and it makes great TV. It's amazing. So that's not a criticism, but in the absence of compelling on-track action at essentially every race, the producers, the showrunners, the you name it, have picked themes that are super compelling. They're kind of the the subplots within many of the races or race weekends, whether it's Daniel Ricciardo deciding to leave this team Renault uh, getting bounced out of this team or Renault then signing uh, the guy, Daniel Ricardo, who's leaving. Uh, it's such, I mean, there's a lot of human drama thrown in. There's not a ton of on-track, actual, wheel-to-wheel, thematic, these are the two drivers going head-to-head. Like the the racing itself, that's the one thing that you almost don't notice through the drive to survive product. It's the, Oh, uh, from in their case, from when the lights go out to the checkered flag, the tell me about the raging battles. Tell me about the championship and how it's weaving and working and who is rising and falling. Eh, Not so much of that. Uh, IndyCar. Good Lord. Seemingly that's, it's not the only thing it has, but that's the big thing it does have that F1 can't boast. And we know the reasons why it's spec cars and things super similar. And of course things are going to be close, but it's a pretty ragged run. If, if there were cameras, I don't know if they were, I'm hoping they were, but the rise of Scott Dixon at 39, 40 years old, going for a sixth championship, the plunging fortunes of Andretti Autosport for, too long this season the young drivers rising uh the team penske nearly getting the championship uh, and joseph newgarden's heartbreak there's so many things that happened on track that i think would make for a truly compelling racing indycar drive to survive less so on the interpersonal dramas and Kevin Magnuson kicking Gunther Steiner's door and Gunther running out, chasing after him, cursing him out. You know, there's a lot of that that makes Drive to Survive like, wow, that's great. Uh, Hard to really lock in on the thematic racing part, uh, truly holding our attention the entire time. 
last quick thing I'll mention, and then I got to go here. And uh, I, I Lemure, you got a question here about uh, Drive to Survivor, some comments about it too. Um, we need to identify who our Gunther Steiner is, right? <laughs> Who's just cursing up a storm, uh, tearing everybody down, just right? Who's the big radical agent? Who's the uh, the destructor in the paddock? That would be the part that we'll really need to figure out. Um, I'm going to say thank you for the uh, all the great stuff. Uh, thank you for continuing to support what we do here. Um, I really do appreciate what you what you do for me, what you do for us. I love getting to do this each week. Uh, should mention if you happen to still be listening, I I Lemure from Reddit. Send your question in again next week. It's on the theme of Drive to Survive, um, just at uh, 170 words worth of a question. Uh, the ensuing answers would take longer than I have today. Um, thank you. Love doing this. Really appreciate y'all and this community that you've helped build because I can't wait to spend time with y'all. And I know that sounds weird because it's just me talking to a microphone right now and knowing that I have to get out the door and get rolling uh, with my lady. But this is uh, a fun little thing that we get to do together. And I really appreciate the fact that you all not only join in, but trust me to entertain, amuse, or I don't know what, uh, help me polish this little turd of a show. Thanks again to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com and Bell Racing Helmets USA. We'll speak to you next week with Jimmy Johnson. <laughs> <laughs>